0: Today's guest is Sophie Heller. Sophie leads the customer experience services team at OutSchool, a marketplace of live online classes for kids. She joined the company as employee Hash2 as its first customer support agent and has since seen the company grow to 200. The support inbox now contains more than 100 people spread over several internal teams and an outsourcer. Sophie's team works to equip the inbox, including more than 50 outsourced agents, for any changes to OutSchool's website or policies, providing services including documentation, training, and quality assurance. Sophie explains how she helped to scale the business and how they support 10,000 teachers and respond to 5,000 tickets per week. She has mastered the art of knowledge sharing within her company with a mix of different training material, good release preparation processes, and also a feedback loop with the product team. She shares how OutSchool measures quality of the replies to customers, as opposed to usual metrics like CSAT, volume, and time-to-resolve queries. A great episode to hear her real-life stories and better understand how support teams operate after this episode.
1: Welcome to Product Perspectives, the podcast for product people that gives a voice to their stakeholders, hosted by Magali Pellisier. Each weekly episode shows you the other side of the product with interviews of the people who contribute to making products a success. They are engineers, writers, marketers, support analysts, UX designers, or even salespeople. Not only will they get the credit they deserve, but they will share their perspectives on what makes a good product and product manager. Stakeholder management is a key skill for product managers. So just as you're obsessed with listening to your customers, let's hear from your stakeholders.
2: Welcome, Sophie. So you've joined ArtSchool as employee number two. Can you provide some context about your company and product?
3: Sure, so I joined OutSchool in the spring of 2018 and have been through a lot of growth with the company. So I came on, I was the second employee after the the three founders and an engineer who'd been there for a long time. The company's now 200 people. We've gone through several rounds of funding. We used to just work with individual teachers and individual families. We now partner with a variety of institutions of different teachers working together. Just So we've really expanded in a lot of different ways.
2: Great, and what does the company do exactly?
3: Yeah, get to ahead of things. So OutSchool, we do live online classes for kids on Zoom. And so when I started, we were a very niche product. People didn't really know. You know, you join a a startup as one of the first employees. You give the pitch a lot. No one knew what Zoom was. People would ask me, oh, but aren't kids in the school? Why would they take a class online? Are most of your students homeschooled? Which at the time was true. We happen to have the perfect, I guess, kind of similar to Peloton, we had this perfect product for when the world just shut down. And so overnight out of school, we grew 10X in our customer base, which means I work in customer support. So it's really great to have more customers, but people need more help. We had to scale up our support incredibly. And so we've continued to navigate this, you know, throughout the pandemic, we were growing and now we're navigating this semi-post-pandemic world and trying to find out how best online classes fit into people's worlds now.
2: Great, exciting. I love talking to people who work in companies who were operating with a remote culture before and, you know, thinking about how we can do things remotely. And it's obviously very interesting when people have had to pivot because of a pandemic. But the fact you did that before is interesting. And so how you are going to adapt to the after? Yeah. And
3: so we actually, it was a bit interesting because our product has always been online. We were an office company in San Francisco. We were just really small. So by the time that the pandemic hit, we were 25 people in office. And so we, you know, immediately had to figure out, okay, how are we going to do this? But in a way where we're hiring people across North America, so all of the U.S., we have a lot of employees in Canada. How are we, you know, going to all work together? So does that
2: mean everybody's remote now, or do you go back to the office?
3: No, no. So there was a, you know, a period of uncertainty when, you know, no one knew how long this was going to go on, but we don't have any physical office space right now. And we, yeah, have employees everywhere, and we just try to get together and meet up when we can. Okay, exciting. So yeah, I think we're going to touch on that because obviously
2: when you lead a support team and they're remote, there's a whole set of of challenges with that. Mm -hmm. So tell me a bit more about the CX, customer experience service team that you're leading and how it's structured.
3: Sure. So I'm within, we call our, our customer team CX, customer experience. That's our greater org of about 30 people at the company. My team, the services team, we work to make sure that support agents, or really anyone who use Intercom to talk to our customers, Anyone who's talking to customers is equipped with the tools they need to be successful. So that means they have, they have playbooks. So we have a lot of situations that, you know, are very common or refund for this type of situation. Someone can't access their Zoom class, a lot of common situations. So we have playbooks for how we want people to be handling those cases. My team also provides macros, so saved language. So, you know, it's a refund situation that we have documented. We want it handled the same way, regardless who's handling. We wanna make sure that the language is clean. And it's also just a lot quicker and more efficient to not have to have agents write their own language. So that's one of the things my team does. We also, we provide training. So we do ASYNC training lessons via Lessonly. And we also, we do QA, so just quality assurance. Uh, We use a tool called Klaus that's designed for support teams so that we're making sure we have thousands of tickets every week and we're no longer at a size where you can see everything, but QA allows you to get a snapshot and just see how people are performing, how are they following your policies, et cetera.
2: Okay, so you're kind of like an operations team for the support team. You do enablement Mm -hmm. and all the processes and all the QA and all of this
3: yeah that's the way that i like to think about it and so at out school we have a couple tiers of support and our front line so that first person you'll write in you'll get we have a bot that attempts to answer some questions um, i wish it could deflect you know all tickets it deflects only a couple so that first person you're talking to we use an outsourcer for that entire front line and so my team is mostly there to make sure that okay we can have an outsourced support team we can try to as best as possible, handle people's problems and not have to hand them off to a different person. But that means that you need a lot of materials. You need a lot of pre-safe responses. You need explicit training. And you want to take a lot of the, the kind of judgment calls that might happen when you're at a smaller company.
2: Great. So that's very interesting. You said, okay, so you've got different levels. Your level one is a mix of a bot and people who are outsourced from another company. So are there plans to expand the capabilities of this bot? And what are the challenges you see with having bots?
3: Well, I think that my biggest challenge is that we're a small team. So the services team is myself and I have three direct reports, all focusing on one of the areas that I mentioned. So If I had a bigger team, I would love to have someone just there full-time writing bot content and trying to, you know, create more self-service articles. Intercom has a couple different types of bots that can help to answer questions. But I think at the end of the day, if you don't have regular maintenance and if it's not comprehensive, customers are going to get frustrated and they're going to want to talk to an agent anyway. So we try our best to, you know, answer some very common questions, but A lot of the time, we'll see that the bot has the exact answer, but someone wants to, you know, hear it from a person. So, yeah, I guess that's what I would do if I had more capacity there. Okay. And are you in charge of measuring the
2: satisfaction of the users after they've received support as well? And what does that
3: look like? So we do measure CSAT intercom once a conversation is closed. It gives a prompt and intercom measures it from one to five with different smiley faces. And that's something that our entire CX team monitors. You know, we have different teams. We have different kind of people working in the inbox. My team does look at that, but we look especially at the metrics that are controlled by our tools. So we'll look at the QA score. So, because sometimes you have examples where let's take a refund, for instance. Maybe an agent is trained, okay, we don't give refunds in the case of a schedule conflict. That's just something that OutSchool wouldn't cover. An agent can follow policies, send the correct responses, and tell the customer, I'm not giving you a refund, and get a terrible customer satisfaction score, right? The customer, they want their money back. They're not satisfied. But- we measure QA so that we can show agents it's okay. Sometimes you're gonna follow procedure, you're gonna do everything right, and you're not gonna make someone happy. So I think it's really important to measure, you know, both the QA and the CSAT score and see how they play together. Cool, okay, so very interesting. So you mentioned you're using a particular tool to do the QA and you're measuring mm-hmm. QA. What does
2: that tool do exactly and what is the measure?
3: Sure, so Klaus, it connects directly to Intercom. And it'll pull up, we aim to do two tickets per agent per week. And so that's just a really small, to give you an idea, we handle 5,000 tickets per week. So that's a very small snapshot, but it allows us to, with the capacity we have, we can just get a sense of how people are performing. And so the measure is something I set up a threshold. And so I set up a rubric where you're looking at different that touch each conversation so how is the agent performing in terms of how's their tone are they empathetic to the customer how is their accuracy are they giving you know are they talking about policies that are in effect right now or we're we're such a fast changing startup so we don't want people to it's very easy for people to remember oh we used to do refunds this way in 2021 we want customers to always have the most accurate information so we have six categories currently that each ticket is scored on And then they meet the threshold that that I've set up for success. So it's currently, it's, it's a little difficult to get into, but basically we want to make sure that they're following all these areas, even if the CSAT is coming back and the customer isn't satisfied because of something often outside the agent's control, right? They don't like that the product doesn't have something. They don't like that the agent is following policy and not, you know, is denying a refund or not removing a review from the site. It just allows us to measure performance, you know, kind of not tied to opinion. Okay.
2: That's a very mature way to run a a support organization because I think I've seen support organizations which were not consistent. You talk to one agent, they say something. You take to the next agent, they say something else. But what you're doing for an organization like School is quite mature in terms of measuring that. So where did that initiative come from? Like, Who was the leader and the the impulsion to drive this initiative of we need to be consistent?
3: Yeah, so one of the things that I had to the support team when I was initially hired, the support team was me, I did all of the tickets, we grew to a team of about five people when we scaled overnight, and suddenly, we had nothing set up. And I think like the, you know, I think the best way to illustrate it, I hired a training specialist a year ago. And throughout the interview process is very clear, like, hey, we're starting training for the first time, we need you to come in and, you know, basically build our training from scratch he started in his first day, he told me, oh, wow, I thought you were exaggerating. You guys literally have nothing. I thought that you were just kind of downplaying. So over the course of, I'd say the last two, we're just now at a point where we're, we're stable enough to, you know, kind of, like before we were, we had such a backlog. We just scaled just overnight. We have five people who can't handle, you know, a backlog of 15,000 tickets. We had to just set up systems. And so I set up the QA system as a part of just, moving towards, you know, we used to be just a few people, if something was difficult, we'd all talk, like go into a room and talk about it. Like, what would you do in this situation? Every customer got a very thoughtful, you know, I'd get on the phone with people and walk them through issues. I'd do Zoom calls to diagnose like, okay, like you're not seeing this thing working correctly in your account you can't, you know, it's like you don't want to do great service, but you have to move to a more systematized approach if you're going to scale. And so QA was just one of the things that I needed to set up as the company was growing tremendously in our support team as well. Great. So besides QA, your team also is in charge
2: of enablement. So if I were a support analyst in the company or outsourced, what kind of material do I have access to? What kind of training do I go through on a monthly basis? How do you do? What are your preferred medium? How does that work?
3: For training, we use a service called Lessonly, which is an LMS. It's all virtual. So Lessonly, it basically takes you through, there are different ways of learning. So slideshows, you have knowledge check quizzes, you have practice chats. And so now that my training specialist has been in place for a year, one of the first things he did, he created an onboarding curriculum so that every time an agent starts, we'll teach them tools. So this is how you use intercom. We teach them the Outschool website, different policies. And beyond the onboarding training, we, one of the biggest things my team does, whenever there's a big product release, we make sure that there's a training and then other materials to go along with it. And so other materials being those playbooks so that agents know how to act in common situations. We have the safe responses so that they have the language. And then we also set up ways to monitor success so that we can make sure that we're not just, you know, throwing something out into the wild and then not knowing how it's going to perform.
2: Great. And that leads to my next topic, which is the training content. Where do you take it from? Mm-hmm. Do you work with the product manager to get it? Do you, the product managers write it or is mm-hmm. it half and half? How does that work?
3: Yeah. So training right now, we only have the person on my team. He's the only person in a training role at OutSchool. And so a lot of that role I see as going into the product and or talking to the right people to get the information. So when my training specialist, Andrew, when he needs to create a lesson, he either needs to, you know, okay, we're going to release I don't know, like new, we recently released the like new guidance around refunds. And so that's, you know, he has to make sure to train, you have to have a great understanding of what's exactly happening. What does it look like in the product? Sometimes it's a little more straightforward if it's a policy or something that we're driving from our side within support. But in the past, when there have been features released, it, it can involve attending product meetings, talking to PMs, getting mock-ups, getting, we always deploy things to staging. So looking at the review app and seeing, okay, let's play around with it. Let's see what it looks like. And making sure that he can put multimedia just at, that's actually you know reflecting what the agents are gonna be using into the training. But yeah, I think that that's something that's gotten a lot easier as we scaled. We now have someone newly in a role that is designed to kind of talk to product and figure out how things work. And so my team previously kind of had to like reinvent the wheel, you know, they're like building the training while trying to figure out how things work. We now have someone on the operations side who can talk to a product, figure out all the edge cases, get a good sense of how the feature is going to work. And now when it gets to my team, they're set, they're stable, like, okay, this is how it works. I just need to write up the playbook, write up the training.
2: Okay, so with that person in operations, is it product operations with doing that role of connecting Uh, the dots between product and your team?
3: Yeah, they're also within support. And so I guess kind of thinking like, we're still small enough where a lot of roles, like my role included, like I've told you what my team does. I do a couple other things at the company that I haven't mentioned. So I think same thing here. So this person, one of their functions is to, you know, be a liaison within support and talk to product and think about okay, like we recent, I don't know, here's an example. We recently released the ability to pay in different currencies previously. We had customers from around the world. You could only pay in USD. That caused a lot of issues because if you need a refund, it's dependent on, that day's exchange rate. So we made some changes to be more accessible to international customers. And it was great that we, you know, have someone on the operations side who can talk to product and talk about, okay, like what's the implication of this? How does that work with our gift card program or with this initiative and kind of go and figure that out so that my team knows the information and can, you know, document it from a stable place instead of like writing it and being like, oh, I don't really, is this how it works? I don't know. I have to ask the PM. And Kind of break
2: my workflow so that's a very interesting example that you've given of a functionality but wasn't there basically yeah. people could only pay in us dollar and that was causing downstream a lot of issues so yeah. where did the idea that we should be able to pay in multiple currency come from mm-hmm. is it the support team who saw the amount of tickets and then went to the product managers or was the product manager aware of this How did that work to bring the feedback from the support team in the equation?
3: So I believe in that case, so we do have, I set up a mechanism to collect customer feedback. And so we are surfacing that to products. But for the most part at Outschool, we have a few different product pods focusing on either different audiences or different parts of the website, and they're independently coming up with ideas. We have a set pod that's focusing on international efforts as we try to historically, we're a US company, most of our teachers are in the US or Canada, same with our customers. So we have a dedicated pod that's just kind of going through the basics of, okay, what do you need to do to work internationally? And that was one item that I think was holding us back
2: okay great so that's a good example and on the other side you've got features which aren't there in the product so you mentioned getting a refund or deleting an account Mm -hmm. these are functionalities that don't exist in the product and that means the users have to reach out to the support team for that so i guess what's the impact for you when Product managers think, oh, this is fine. We don't need the functionality right now because we've got an alternative. We've got a workaround, which is that the support team can handle this. But then for you, that's an additional workload. So, can you give us a, a sense of the impact this has on your team?
3: Yeah, I think this is something that we at the company, I think we usually think of this as economic thinking. So, thinking about, okay, there's going to be an impact either let's take the refund functionality, for example. So we actually do customers, they have access to kind of like an Airbnb, if you wanna cancel your booking and you can find, you know, you search the website, you find the button to do it, it'll give you a refund back. We do have that it's very buried it's just often we don't have a tech savvy user base for the most part we're we're working with a lot of former classroom teachers or parents who are new to i think the pandemic really helped us and that people are very used to zoom at this point but are still you know it's not the same as uh working at a b2b tech company so i think that with refunds as an example i think people you know tend to they don't know that they can find this button and they write into us, and you know, it does cause work for our team. But I think like thinking about it economically, like there's always going to be an impact, right? It's either an engineer is spending days or weeks of their time, and a product manager is, you know, assisting it. Like a lot of people are involved on in the product side making a fix, or you can throw like human capital at it basically. So, you know, I'll give an example. We have an affiliate program for teachers now, a re- referral program where people get payments if they refer teachers. And when that was set up, I helped set that up in the summer. I want to say that was like the summer of 2018 or 2019. And it was decided that it would be, the rewards would be paid out manually by by me at the time now by, you know, a team of other people in support. And that wouldn't build it into products because we weren't fully sure, like, is this the way we want it to work? It's a lot of engineering work. It's a lot of, you know, if you don't know, like, we might change the reward amount, we might change the threshold to get the payout. And so here we are two or three years later, and that's still being done manually. And I think that's something that I've really had to learn moving into a strategic role and not when I started at OutSchool, I did the tickets. I kind of was on the ground doing all of the kind of support or operations work that needed to take place. And I think like being in a more strategic role now, I can see, you know, I think previously it would have been like, oh, but we're spending, you know, a lot of people are spending hours of their day to send these payments manually. Why can't we build this? But then you look holistically and see that the company needs to, you know, make product plans based on what's the most, you know, so like changing our currency to allow payments outside USD, that's like a more impactful change than, you know, someone spending days or weeks to build this payment, like I don't know. So I think it's like, it's always a balancing act.
2: Yeah, that's a very good example because I was really looking forward two or three years later, this is where we are. And I wondered (laughs) if this was still the same because I agree that when you do a feature for the first time, it's like your MVP, you want to have a quick and easy solution. So let's do this manually. And then I was like, okay, how is it years Mm -hmm. later? And in that case, maybe it's something that isn't happening a lot and compared to a Mm -hmm. solution like currency, paying in different currencies, definitely, I can see that paying in different currencies opens a lot more business and a lot more opportunities. So that would be a good scenario in which you want to automate things.
3: Yeah. And I think that, you know, like that's one example that like I can list on just my personal pain points because I used to do those manual payments. I train the people who do them now. It's painful. It's time consuming. But I think we have a lot of other great examples. So I'll give you another example. When I started at the company... I also, I pretty much all of our teachers who started, they went through an interview process, which was a phone call, most often with me, and then training, which they'd actually get on Zoom with me and no one, you know, remember no one knew what Zoom was in 2019, 2018, and I'd show them all the buttons and how to do it and make sure they were confident to teach their first class. Right now, I am not the person screening all of our teachers. We have about 10,000 teachers on the platform. And over the years, we've gone from, it's no longer just a, you know, some loose CVOC phone call with someone at the company. We have a structured rubric. We have a trained team of, I want to say, I don't work on this side anymore. It's at least 10 contractors, if not more, who are evaluating teachers on really set criteria in the rubric. We have similar to Lessonly, we use a platform called SkillJar for customer education so that when teachers start, they have to complete set training modules that show them, here's how you schedule classes on outschool. Here's how you teach via Zoom. And so I think that's a really good example of, you know, you start really small and you start with something that, you know, there was no product involvement. It was a lot of man hours. It was a lot of my time on the phone, on Zoom with teachers. But then we were able to better understand what do we want from our teachers? how do we want to train them? And now we have several teams and a lot of contractors that have operationalized both of these things.
2: Great. Thank you. I love how you're giving so many good examples because we can really see what it's like with some real life examples. So thanks for doing that. So another part of what your team does is uh, creating macros. So Mm -hmm. can you elaborate a bit on what these are and what do they do?
3: so when i say macro this is the saved language that people use to respond to common situations so i'll take our refunds example because that was a recent we my team released that project a couple of weeks ago so we have different situations for the most part they want a refund for a, like a finite set of circumstances they have a schedule conflict they can't make the class they're disappointed in the class the teacher isn't good they want to leave I don't know, they like want to use a different payment method. There are a set number of circumstances. And so in order to previously a lot of our refund tickets, agents didn't know, oh, what do I do in this situation? Is this a and because we're marketplace, we're dealing with different fund types. So we're dealing with, you know, do we take something out of the teacher's pay or do we take something just out of OutSchool's pocket? So it gets, it's a little more nuanced than if we were just a company, you know, directly selling to customers. And so the the macros, the save language really helps because now agents can, for example, if someone can't attend because they're dissatisfied, agents know, okay, you're able to give this amount of money as a refund. Here's the funding source you take it from, and you should tell that here are all of the pieces of language that you should use with a customer. So that like you run the, when you rely on safe language of your support sounding robotic. But to me, I'd rather choose that. We've had one of the reasons we use an outsourcer is because you know as our volume of support tickets drastically changes, we're, we're a very seasonal business with the academic school year. We're able to scale up and down and not have to affect uh, personnel on the team. So we've had anywhere between 50 to 100 Outsource agents on our first tier, But with that, you know, I want them to be, even if the conversation might sound a little mechanic or sound pre-written, like it was pre-written because I want them to, you know, ha- I want to have a consistent experience with every agent I talk to. I want agents, some of our agents aren't native English speakers. So I want them to, you know, have language written by my team as opposed to writing their own language. I want to make sure that policies are super clear for customers and that it's efficient. So at times when we're really busy, agents shouldn't be, if it's a simple refund request, they shouldn't be spending like 30 minutes thinking of how do I solve it? A lot of times they would send them up to our tier two or tier three. We just want them to be able to close them out efficiently and without escalating to a different team where it sits in the queue, customer waits a long time for a response. So yeah, I see it's another balancing act, but I see relying on safe language is a really great way to make sure that, you know, you can outsource your support and have consistency from agent to agent.
2: Yeah. And I think because you've mentioned that the frontline support is outsourced and it varies depending on on the demand with seasonality, I think it would help. And it's not only for you, I'm sure the support analysts themselves appreciate this support.
3: Oh, absolutely. And so one of the things my team is constantly trying to do, we use a tool, it's called Kenchi, and it's basically like an internal wiki and a collection of safe responses for support. So it's a Chrome extension. It sits right on the left of their intercom window. And so my team is constantly trying to improve the ways that agents can find information. Since one of the reasons we did this refund project, we had all that information in Kenshi, We didn't change anything on the policy side this time. We just wanted to make it simpler for agents to find. But if your information is buried or they have to go to, you know, five different like, oh, did you check this wiki page? Did you check this Google Doc? Look in Slack for this thing. We just want things to be centralized since you could have all the information in the world, but if it's not organized in a way that makes sense, no one's going to read it or apply it. Exactly.
2: And I've got the same problem as a product manager, which is that there's usually a lot of documentation. Mm-hmm. Some people use Confluence, Notions, I use ClickUp, mm-hmm. but people don't find it They or they don't have time or they don't bother <laughs> trying to find it. So do you, is that solution, that extension you've got, would it be something that could be used by other people in the company? Let's say your salespeople want to No, what is our refund policy? How does that work? Could other people in the company use it?
3: Yeah, so it is open to anyone in the company. I think that's one of the challenges. So right now, because we grew so quickly and because we're still trying to standardize at the company, I can think of we have a different internal wiki that I'd set up previously. We now have a tool kind of like Notion that is being socialized throughout the company so that we can more easily, you know, share. I think like as we grew, it was hard to know which team was working on a certain project. And like, that's the worst thing if you have duplicated work, like, you know, we all want to work hard and get things done, but there's no, there's no sense in two different teams working on the same problem, not in conjunction with each other. So I think ultimately I'd love to, you know, move to a place where information's really accessible throughout the company. And it's not like, oh, support uses this thing. Like, because we i think we have notion as well like we've like five different systems or so floating around and so that's where i'd like to see us go but i think we have a long way to to get there great so one of the
2: other things you've mentioned is the releases so releases can be very stressful because support teams have to be ready for that release and even if we try and be ready there's always something going wrong and there's a surge in tickets so what do you need to know when there is a release
3: yeah and so it's always it's so funny like i would think that four years here with uh I mean, our community has really grown, but it's a lot of the same, you know, types of customers. We do have a lot of legacy teachers. And I find that a lot of the time the legacy people are more likely to speak up. They're very vocal if they don't like anything. I would think that I'd be used to, you know, our customer base and able to precipitate any questions. That's not the case. I don't think that's ever going to be the case for, you know, my the entirety of my time at OutSchool. I think what we can do, we can figure out exactly When you're using a feature, what are the implications? We want to think about it, you know, especially in support from how is this affecting money? So does it affect teachers pay on the customer side? Does it affect the way that people are paying for classes? I think just trying to get a sense of like, what are the most common? I think like where we struggle, it's hard to premeditate where people are going to be upset just because there was a change versus I think we have a good handle of what types of like common support questions are going to come up about this feature. So I think we, you know, we just know going in that we're probably going to have unexpected dissatisfaction or confusion that we just didn't even think about, but we do our best to, you know, think about the the common types of like, okay, what would you write into customer support if you had a common type of request for this, you know, type of uh, situation. So I know I realize that's like very vague, but I think that, you know, sometimes it's the best you can do.
2: Yeah, exactly. Think, trying to think of oh, what would customer ask in terms of yeah. questions when based on your features. So do you yeah. see the features at the very end of the development cycle or do you see them early enough? And can you even contribute to those features to raise those red flags earlier and say, oh, I think if you do it like this, this design or this change, we're going to have users who don't understand it and they're going to raise lots of tickets.
3: Yeah, so that's something that's really been in flux since we've scaled the way that customer experience interacts with product. So right now I feel great about this person in the kind of liaison role that i mentioned. That's a recent change. And I think that's gonna be you know, really helpful in having, because I think one difficulty can arise when everyone, we're, we're all on the same team, we want the same results, but when you have a lot of different people chiming into a conversation, even if everyone's saying things that are correct and have good intentions, it can get really confusing. And I think too, you know, we're so focused in CX on working with customers and what customers are like. A lot of other teams, they just, they don't have that same connection. And so I think it's easy to, you know, kind of, we get stuck in our worlds. They get stuck in, you know, the product world of like, let's make really fun, flashy things. And like, let's do like the most exciting thing possible when we're really just thinking about like, okay, but how is this going to affect people? So I think having like one person who can, you know be like play point and be a voice for customer experience i think that's incredibly helpful because product then knows they're not going to like seven different people who might have different opinions or might phrase things differently and you know confuse people they they have like, one set person to talk to who can chime in and premeditate you know a lot of like big issues and so, yeah, we do have like several meetings between CX and product. I know that like products will often, if they don't understand something, they'll often reach out and, you know, talk to either art liaison or, you know, maybe someone who is more of a subject matter expert on what they're trying to change. But yeah, I think it, it's been really important in different ways to have CX involved throughout the development process. Cause we've caught a lot of, we don't catch every issue, but we, we can catch things and be like, oh. That's going to cause hundreds of tickets, you know, really piss people off. Let's not do it that way. Great.
2: Okay. So for the final part of this podcast, I Mm -hmm. make several suggestions and you pick one of them. Sure. In terms of ticketing system, Salesforce, Zendesk or Intercom?
3: So I'm biased in that I've only used Intercom before. I'm not familiar with Salesforce. I'm a little more familiar with how Zendesk works. I think there may come a stage at OutSchool where... A lot of companies, they get started on Intercom, Help Scout, a smaller platform, and they switch to Zendesk to have kind of a better ability to customize, use Zendesk has stronger macros. They have an an internal help center and not just the external help center my team manages, and that's information for customers and not, you know, ways that they do workflows. So I think there could be a time that we'd want greater functionality, but we've been really satisfied with Intercom so far. I think like... One of the great things about it is that it handles both email and chat, but it looks the same on the agent side. So I know a lot of companies, they have totally different tools to manage their email and their chat, but it's great that it's easy for agents, doesn't look any different if they're responding to a chat or an email, all the metrics are in the same place, it's easy for training. So I think that's one great thing. And then it's also been really nice that Intercom, some of the functionality is more limited in ways, but it does a lot of other things other than being an inbox. So we host our help center where our official policies are hosted. That's an intercom, and that's great because agents can just easily insert those help articles right in a conversation. We a little less now that we've had more marketing people come on, but we've really relied on intercom's mass email functionality. So we still use that to some extent, and that's really great because things just tie in. Intercom does product tours, little pop-ups on the site. So I. I think I see it working for us for, you know, the foreseeable future, but maybe there'll come a time when we're, we're big enough to want more customized features. Right. And in terms of internal communication, do you prefer Slack or emails? I think that one thing that I've really learned being in a remote environment now for over two years, everyone's going to have different preferences. And it's really tough to know that when you're remote so some people really like slack for everything some people only want slack for kind of more lighthearted chit chat and they want important things in email some people like never want to look at slack we're a very slack heavy company we have tons of channels a lot of you know cross functional collaboration happens that way so you know even if i i do get stressed out by it i don't currently have it open right now as we're recording I would love to not use Slack. I think that's kind of sunk reality at the company. My kind of compromise, since I'm someone who my job is really writing heavy and writing policies, I'm reviewing, you know, ways that we're going to operate and support procedures. I prefer to have like a long document I'd like that in my email, just so that I know where it is. I can come back to it and I can, because for, for me, Slack, it's all, it's like, oh, you got your cat photos over there. And then you have your friend, like who's, you know, oh, this meeting we're in, can you clarify what, what was just said? And then you have this update, that update. I like knowing that my email is a place I can go into when I have heads down time. And if I need to, you know, do something, like talk about policies with our legal team or, you know, go through a more structured, someone's proposal for a role, JDs, you name it. I love having that in my email when possible and keeping Slack for kind of more in the minute conversation. I think you're right that it depends on the people and that
2: is frustrating when you have to (laughs) Mm -hmm. to discuss with someone who's not the same type as you and you'd prefer having it in Slack Mm -hmm. and they prefer emails or vice versa. Great so your company does online training so Mm -hmm. live or on-demand training?
3: so we currently we have on-demand training via lessonly so it's all it's a you know the lms it's all async we want agents to do it if we assign it out on say monday we want them to do it that week but they can complete it on their own time i think that when we first started we didn't have lessonly we didn't have anyone in that role so we did often just get on zoom and when we when we first started working with an outsourcer We actually just train them live on Zoom and just show them everything, which I think, you know, if you're small and you don't have the, because a lot of these things, you have to take the time to set up the systems that can really work. And I think now we're at a place where we have this training department, we have this like really great tool, but it does take a lot of time for our training specialists to create lessons under, you know, as we talked about before, kind of understand the problem or the feature deeply enough to write lessons. So now we're going more to a place where we ideally want everything to be a lessonly training, but sometimes there's, I don't know, sometimes there's like a couple hundred tickets coming in and all we need to do is show agents how to look at this one query. And maybe now we can just have People come onto Zoom and just show them, okay, like here's like, we're going to spend 20 minutes learning this. Here's how you do it. And so I think that's going to help us move faster with the limitation of having just one training person for the whole company. But ideally, I think you, I'm very much of the opinion that async training is the way to go because once you do it, you can do it again. So we work with one outsourcer now. Let's say we wanted to work with another one. We have our training just all set up versus having to, you know, create materials from scratch, spend the time, maybe travel off-site, because I know a lot of when you work with a vendor, a lot of times you're actually traveling to wherever they're based and, you know, doing in-office trainings. I think it's just so much easier to move quickly, you know, provided that you have the time to proactively set it up.
2: So as part of your role, you interact with different personas. So there's the teachers, there's the parents, the students, mm-hmm. and also the support teams. Which one do you prefer? Yeah.
3: Well, I mean, that's a tough question. I love like interacting with my coworkers. I think that we all, especially those of us who were you know, in the office and then overnight we had Mm -hmm. our company expand a tremendous amount. I think there's like nothing that can create a bigger bonds than going through an experience like that. So I love being able to sustain connection with my coworkers. I, I think too, like, and I especially felt this way when I was a support agent talking to people, I think you need humor to get through it because people if they're writing to support they don't want to talk to support they just they don't want to have the problem in the first place they're mad like they're you know it can be a really stressful job but I think there's often just something really really funny and so a lot of my long-term coworkers, we've just gotten through it by just laugh sometimes you just laugh at the absurdity of like someone's request or I don't know something happening at the company and that's a really like humor is just such a great way to Get through, you know, any sort of interaction you're going to have in support.
2: Yeah, that's a good way to look at it, actually, because I have witnessed the the stress that is on the shoulders of the support team. They've got so many tickets, and they are measured, you know, on the time it takes to resolve one ticket. So it can be very stressful. So yeah, I think that's a good piece of advice
3: yeah it's stressful but you never know what you're gonna get one of my work friends once said kind of like the movie forest gump supports like a box of chocolates you never know what it's gonna be and like you know you get angry people but at the end of the day you really are helping people and i think that if you do a great job regardless of what it is doesn't have to you know using outskill as an example but just throughout my life i've just noticed that people who provide great customer service i'm with them for life i'm a lifetime customer if you can't provide good customer service, I'm out. So I think it's like important to remember that even if people are mad and it's not always the most, you know, it can be a very stressful job, you can make a huge difference and people are super grateful if they're able to get the help they need. Right. I'm sure you'd have motivated lots of people to go
2: into this job saying <laughs> they can make an impact. Right. So if you had one last thing to tell a product manager who wants to be a good partner with you, what do you recommend they do to make your life easier?
3: I think a lot of it is about listening. And so I would say that goes both ways. I know in support, it's really easy for us to be like, product doesn't listen to us and like they don't understand that we need this. But I think we should be listening too. Like, I think so. For me, I have a background in engineering. I did a coding boot camp. I worked as an engineer for a couple of years before going back into customer support. And I think that's giving me a great understanding of. Sometimes, you know, like of different, the length that different features take to build, how involved it changes when it like, you know, could be easier, even though it's frustrating, it's easier for me and support to fix this issue than for product to devote a lot of resources. So that's really helped me. And so I think that it would be helpful in turn for product to, you know, listen to us and understand, okay, like this is the impact of our refund button being hard to find. You know, we can show, we can show them date. My team is now tracking data. We can show, okay, like this amount of tickets resulted because people couldn't find the button. And then that's a way of, you know, if they listen to that, then they can kind of get an idea of what's happening. So I think like we do a ride along program where people in product are paired with support and I, I'm not involved in the program. So I don't fully know how it works, but I know it's a lot of shadowing. It's a lot of our customer team talking to product about the biggest pain points that customers are seeing. And I think that's been really successful because it's so hard to have empathy, like not because you don't want to have it, but you just get so siloed into your role. You're not thinking. I think that and I think like one more thing that that is helpful. I know, like as a former engineer, there's nothing that engineers hate more than manual processes. So I think if you can one thing that I would have loved to do, and I hope that this is happening in the ride along program if I could show engineers what this manual referral payment process looks like and how painful it is, how many clicks, how long it takes, engineers get really passionate about automating work and not having people do terrible manual tasks. So that's one thing that I think is super helpful to show them, like, this is the impact on someone's life, their day-to-day at work is doing this terrible manual thing that code could solve.
2: Yeah, and I think so. My two takeaways from what you've just said is one Building that empathy with the support team, maybe pair like that program you have internally where you do my job for a bit, you see what it's like. And I do your job and I answer to some support tickets yep. and I see also what kind of queries I get and how difficult it is to do those manual processes. And then the second thing, and that's what I did in my previous role, which was mm-hmm. I actually treated the support team like a separate persona. So they're somehow users of the system, you know, indirect users, because when something doesn't work well, they have to go and find out. They use the tool themselves and they also have to answer all the queries. So understanding their pain points and potentially putting things in the roadmap that would help them as well, provided that it's good from a, a business perspective, but putting things in a roadmap that
3: would serve them as well absolutely and i think of because i lead a services team and we work internally but i think of all of our users as customers so we have our outsourced frontline agent customer type and we do surveys to understand you know what their sentiment is like what they want to see from us you know versus building resources for a smaller internal team that's a different type of customer so yeah i think just like it all just goes back to me to customer service and how important it is even if you're working internally people, internal people can be your customers and how are you going to best help them get what they need?
2: Great. Thank you very much. That was a very interesting conversation. So how can people can carry on the conversation with you if they want to reach out for any question or just a chat?
3: Sure. People are welcome to find me on LinkedIn, Sophie Heller, or because uh, because we're a startup and I joined so early, I'm just Sophie at outschool.com. Perfect.
2: Thank you very much and have a good day.
1: Thank you everyone for taking the time to listen to this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues, and rate it on your favorite podcast platform. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, or any feedback, you can write to Pelissier at hotmail.fr.